After the whirlwind that was MotoGP 2020, 14 races where we saw nine different winners and five brand new MotoGP race winners. And of course, a brand new world champion in the shape of Juan Mir. Let's catch up with a tech-based review of what's happened and what might need to happen for some teams into 2021. With me, Toby Moody, is the tech man of MotoGP since the era began back in 2002. Neil Spaulding, writer of MotoGP Technology, a book that's now in its third edition as the sport is into its third era. Hi, Neil. I'll go straight into it. What was your highlight of the season? Tech or not technical, emotional, dramatic? What stood out for you? Oh, um... To be honest, Brad Binder winning at Bruno. Third race, novice rider in MotoGP. First ever win for KTM. Just fantastic. <laughs> Absolutely fantastic. It was uh, it was quite something. And there we were at only the third race of the year, and we were, we were just being blown away. But let's just go through each team step by step, shall we? And then we've got some listeners' questions that you guys have sent in to us, and we'll cover those at the uh, at the back end of this podcast. So, Neil, we'll start with Suzuki because they ra- won the Riders' Championship. How did they go from being 12th in the Riders' Championship with Mir and 4th with Rins to winning it in 2020? Well, if you remember, when we started this year, all the talk was about Michelin's new rear tyre. And the simple fact is, Suzuki understood that tyre and built a motorcycle that would work with that tyre faster than anybody else. They've got a bike that works on the tyres that are available. That's completely opposite to somebody like Ducati, where their lead rider simply couldn't get on with the tyre, or... Uh, Honda, uh, who at the start of the year had Marquez, just looked lost all the way through till Misano. Was it the riders? Was it technical? Have they had something up their sleeve that you might have seen on a bike in previous seasons, end of season test 19, pre-season 2020? Was there a magic bullet or was it just an alignment of the stars? Not an alignment of the stars. Suzuki is all about incremental development. They are so careful. They are so precise. They modify things very gently. They monitor the changes. For instance, if they bring a new engine tune, suddenly we'll have uh, tour ductors, torque sensors on the cha- on the um, output shaft of the gearbox at the front of the, spro- the front sprocket. It's there to measure exactly how much power is being made at each application of the throttle. They don't bother with it during races. They just use it when they've got a new engine tune. And by doing that, they are getting rid of all the variables that can upset a motorcycle. It's easy to make a racing MotoGP motorcycle make more power. What is not easy is to give the rider the feeling that if he moves the throttle by one millimeter, he gets a, let's say, 2% change in horsepower and no more, no more and no less. You know, it's that rear stat reaction to the throttle that matters more than anything else. But if I could jump in, you're, you're talking about power for the torductor, tor, T-O-R as in torque. Is it not a measurement of torque or is it absolutely a measurement of power? All engine power inverted commas is torque and the horsepower numbers are merely a mathematical computation from the torque so the torque produced and the rpm at which it is done develops the horsepower number all you're really talking about is the is the shape of the curve and all the throttle systems in motorcycling are there to try and flatten the curve to try and make the response like a rear stat, no surprises. I mean, when I go back to when I started riding motorbikes a long time ago. Is it black and white? <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> um, the telly was, that's for sure. <laughs> um, you used to go to the shops on a torquey motorcycle, and if you got a race bike, it was peaky and aggressive. I would argue that these days it's completely the other way around. 
bikes are built now so that the torque curve makes the rider feel like something's happening. So it's actually quite an aggressive torque curve. But when you go racing and you're very serious about that racing, you don't want any of that. You want a really boring delivery of power. Lots of it, but no surprises. And Suzuki have been working away at that, slowly increasing the power, checking, checking, checking. Also, this year, they got a new beam frame. Uh, if you remember last year and the year before, they ran chassis with carbon moldings attached to the beams. And they've been clearly trying to find a way to dispense with the carbon and have their choice of flexibility versus rigidity uh, reflected in just a simple aluminium structure. And that they have had this year. Um, and it's worked. You know, they, they got there. It means their test team worked really hard on the new rear tyre and on a linkage, a suspension linkage, that let them manage the way that tyre's grip was distributed. If you're leaned over on a motorcycle and you start applying the throttle, the chain is trying to extend the suspension. The... Uh, the movement of the vehicle is trying to crush the rear suspension and the sum total of those maneuvers is putting pressure on the tire. You've got to get that right. If you get that right, because the back is extending slightly, stroke being pressured to, to be compressed slowly altogether, that decides how much pressure there is on the front tire. And it's very, very easy when you have a new tyre, to lose that balance. Suzuki got that right. It is no coincidence that Suzuki's uh, test team crew chief, a chap called Tom O'Kane, is an absolute past master in, sus in suspension linkage design. It's no uh, accident that the man running the technical side of the Suzuki team used to design swing arms. That was his speciality. And they're exactly the sort of skills that would m let you understand something like a new tyre and build that understanding into your bike. So going on from that, we've seen a lot of crew chiefs come over from a suspension job within the paddock. Uh, Santi Hernandez, who's with Mark Marquez. Uh, Mike Leitner went to Endrigia near Pedrosa in 250 and then the uh, the big class. Um, beefy Bergignon. Beefy Bergignon. He came over from Showa. Yes. So there's three different manufacturers with three different guys who've gone into three different jobs that we've talked about there. Is that the golden key? Is that the the magic code? Do you think is 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 it is rear end much more important than chassis? No. In the end, it's an overall understanding that wins the prize. Um, I would argue, actually, these days, most of the top guys come through the electronics side. Um, but if you're in electronics and controls, electronic controls, you must understand the whole vehicle as well. So a good crew chief is an overall machine specialist. It sounds awful, but, you know, he isn't he doesn't need to understand how the motor works. He just needs how to use what it gives off. Uh, but to me there is something going on in the paddock which isn't to my personal view correct it seems that crew chiefs are chosen because they get on with the rider and i don't think that's right i quite like the older version where the crew chief is the strict firm but reassuring dad or mum that brought you up and that you get help from them. The rider is looked after by them. But if he gets it wrong and he starts messing around, he's told to get back in line. And that's not happening enough. There's been one or two cases this year where you sit down and you look and you think, no, chaps, the idea is not to be best mates. It's not working. It's not good. It's not right. Can't have the tail wagging the dog. I'm a big believer in that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Okay, what might Suzuki need 
to go forward? That's a really difficult question, I know, Neil. But what might you think they have up their sleeve, and what do you think they are they have their weaknesses been? Well, very few weaknesses, and actually, it's the easiest question there is to answer. They basically want this year's motorbike, but a little bit quicker, and that's it. <laughs> the, the the easiest thing to do now for Suzuki is to try and make something in commas, better and lose the very balanced, beautifully operating motorcycle they've got now. So I'm going to ask that 2021 question of all the manufacturers, but there's one thing that they are going to have, which is Michelin tyres underneath them. We had a new Michelin tyre for a new Michelin rear for 2020. Where are things at with the front for 21? Well, the original plan that was explained to us a couple of years ago was we developed the rear tyre that works better leaned over more grip and a year later after a load of testing we'll introduce a front tire to match it so this was always the year where you're going to have a mismatched pair of tires where you're going to have a rear uh, that would easily overpower the front yes if you don't get that linkage and the way that the bike throws its weight around and therefore throws its grip around if you don't get that right for this very weird combination of a front tire from one family and a rear tire from another you weren't going anywhere suzuki got that right next year was supposed to be the year where we got the front to go with it the testing didn't happen the front tire is delayed we have got another year with this mismatched pair perfectly matched for suzuki Correct. Yes. I mean, the, 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 we've swapped a world where several different tire manufacturers could attack the series um, and they brought solutions to motorcycle problems. So if a manufacturer had a bike 90% of the way there, but the weight distribution wasn't right and the way that the bike loaded up the suspension wasn't right, the tyre manufacturer could say, well, we can solve that. We'll make the rear tyre more grippy and the front tyre more slippy or the other way around. Uh, and they could basically uh, end up with a bike that worked. With a single tyre manufacturer, the tyre is part of the problem. Here are your tyres. Now make a motorcycle to fit it. And that's a very difficult skill. I mean, a pair of black rubber round things is not exactly telling you what they need to operate. The only way you find that out is going out there on the racetrack and seeing what's going on. Okay, let's now move on to Yamaha. Yamaha, who won 50% of the 14 Grand Prix in 2020, between Morbidelli, between Quattararo, and just one victory for the works bike in the shape of Maverick Vinales. How can they win 50% of the Grand Prix and yet not win the championship and not win the Constructors' Championship as well? Well, it's actually a very classic old-fashioned answer, really. They took very careful aim at their feet with a shotgun and fired both <laughs> barrels. Okay. Um, Harsh, but factually correct. <laughs> yes. Um, there was a valve problem. Uh, in the first two races, uh, everybody except Quattararo stopped at least once, who was on at Works Yamaha anyway, with valves falling apart, stroke heads dropping off. We don't, they've never told us specifically what failed. We do know that it was uh, valve gear getting upset. It then turns out towards the end of the year when somebody not unreasonably asked, if you had all these problems in the first two races and engines blew up, but now you've done another eight races and nothing's blown up, um, what's different? And Yamaha had to come clean and admit they had uh, had valves supplied by two different manufacturers and that one of them, the new one, had done something different. So simply by admitting that, they admitted they had broken the rules and the rules requiring them to have a frozen engine design at the start of the year with no variations during the year. The next question is, why was it a different spec? Well, they said that the manufacturer making the original valves wasn't making them anymore, so they asked somebody else to build some. In itself, I do not think that should be a problem. If they look the same and are the same, 
that's a manufacturer is different manufacturer is not a different spec however the material or the heat treating or the machining of the edges or the machining of the center or the final plating something was different or the gas inside them yeah i mean Mm. things that you can't see feel or anything else and i refuse to believe that an exhaust valve, and I think it is the exhaust valve because they have the hardest time, is going to make sufficient a difference for someone to think a different spec will make us enough horsepower to be worth the risk of cheating. If you're going to cheat, go big. You don't do it for little. Yeah. So I don't think they're cheating. I think there was an error. I think I personally think it's linked to the fact that the guy running the project last year and deeply involved in the project all the way since uh, Rossi turned up in 2003, Suji-san. Last year, you mean 2019? 2019, yes. Yes. Yeah, 2019. Suji-san has left the racing department, gone off to run another part of Yamaha, but he was an engine man. He was Yamaha's man in Judd when they were making their Formula One engines for them. He, he had six years' experience of the Formula One level before he came across to Yamaha's MotoGP team with Furusawa-san to sort the thing out with, with Rossi. It's inconceivable that this error would have happened with him in charge. He would have understood what the variables could have been. Somebody somewhere, somebody far more junior, got something wrong. And they have paid the most terrible price. Morbidelli's had an engine blow up in the second race. They withdrew two engines from the first race, didn't use them again. He lost a third one. He did all of the rest of the season on two engines. It's just phenomenal. He was given five because they thought he needed it. Not because they were going to try and do some sort of endurance record, and he finished second in the championship. Whatever they did to make them last, they'd have pulled back the ignition, they'd have limited the revs, they'd have been really nice with the fuel mixture. All of those things could have been used for more power. Morbidelli won a race at Aragon and was the slowest bike in the field. In a straight line. In a straight line. This is phenomenal. This is absolutely phenomenal. Now, if they can fix this so that next year Morbidelli has all the engines he's supposed to have and the chassis he's got now, he's going to clear off. That bike is a winner. The problem is that Yamaha actually built two different bikes this year. Morbidelli's bike, which was a 2018 bike, sorry, 2019 bike, used in 2020, and then three other bikes, or four full factory bikes. So Quattararo, although he was not in the factory team, had equal machinery to Vinales. What they have been trying to do is, is exactly what Suzuki tries to do, which is make small incremental changes and make the bike better overall. And something has gone wrong because what they have done is they've made the bike better in a specific type of racetrack Hereth being a classic, and worse everywhere else. It is not the first time they've done it. They've done it they've, in, in three, four years ago uh, with Maverick and Rossi in the works team. They won Phillip Island, then went home back to Europe to Valencia, and they were something like 15th and 16th on the Saturday night. And that's when they walked into Tech 3 and took back old chassis, to try and desperately fit them and do all their testing in warm-up on the Sunday morning. And they did it at Assen in 2019 as well, and Maverick won the race. Correct, and they did it at Assen with Ben Spees back in... 2011. Something like that. Won the race. They, They built a chassis, and they're desperately trying to make a chassis work on a whole bunch of different racetracks. But sometimes, in chasing that you destroy its ability to work on one or two circuits that have a particular characteristic. Ben Spees and the whole works team turned up at Assen. The normal crew of engineers had been letting things happen. They weren't going anywhere. They weren't going to win anything. Furusawa-san, now in retirement, 
and on holiday turns up and says, what are you doing? There's a truck there with a whole bunch of old chassis in. Use them. And they stuck an old chassis under Ben Spees, and he said, ooh, this works. And he won the race. It's the only race he did win. He did. He did. He did. Lorenzo now, and Simoncelli down on the first lap. Yeah. Yeah. Th- this whole game is not about perfection. Having said all this, this game is not about perfection everywhere. This game is about perfection in the most circuits possible. And then a good second in the others. Damage limitation. Yes. What Yamaha appear to have done is build something that's gone from being acceptable in a lot of circuits and genius at one or two to building something that's genius at one or two different ones, but not good enough everywhere else. So, Suji-san, you've extolled his virtues. He's had to go home and retire. That's the Japanese way. Well, you're not retired. Or move on to other projects. Marine or something, yeah. I'll I'll rephrase it, yes. But he's no longer... was it's, was he really the genius and this guy is still good? Or was Suji-san good and the current guys have got a bit of learning to do? Yeah, he was just very experienced. When somebody turned up from a valve manufacturer and said, oh, we can't make those for whatever reason, we haven't got the material, and somebody said, oh, we'll go and get them made over there, whoever said that hadn't fully grasped how different manufacturers can make the same thing. It's a bit like here is a chocolate bar from Cadbury's and then you walk into Mars bar and you say, can you make a replica of a dairy milk bar? Certainly. It'll look the same, but the chocolate will be different because Cadbury's is a secret recipe that only they know. Yes. And (laughs) do you see what I mean? No, absolutely. And, And it's stuff you can't, I mean, you can detect a different material. You can detect different plating. Can you detect the combination of that and the heat treating? Mm. Mm. You know, it, there's so much. I mean, Yamaha knew what they were asking for, and whatever the original valve manufacturer was doing was absolutely dead right. But something somewhere went wrong in translation. So what might Yamaha need to do for 2021? Starting Ooh, with one. the engines, quite obviously. <laughs> well, yes. They, they would appear to have a choice of two valves. Can I suggest they choose the one that lasts? Um, that means they've got the power back. You know, I mean, they never had a lot of power because they've always treasured this connection that the rider has over abs- absolute power. But this time they got it really wrong. So use the right, en- right valves next year in all your engines. Stop messing around. And you have one chassis that works better than the others. Up until this year, it's been possible for Yamaha just to go to the shed, get the old chassis out, come back and bolt the new, the, whatever engine they've got in, in the racing year into an old chassis. The, the, the mounting points have stayed unmoved for years. See Spees at Assen, see Vinales at Assen, what we've yep. just been discussing. Yep. But that didn't happen this year. Now... It's incredibly difficult to tell the difference. But this time last year, I was pretty convinced they'd change something around the gearbox. Now, if you think about it, you've got several mountings at the back of the engine. And where they are in space, is does, it does rather matter what size the gearbox is underneath them. And if, for instance, you wanted a slightly larger gearbox... And I have a funny feeling they might do because they've kept this engine size the same all the way through for 15 years. They certainly weren't making the power back 15 years ago they're making now. So they just might want a slightly beefier gearbox. And you might have to say, well, okay, we'll have to move the casting a bit or the machining a bit to make the gearbox a bit bigger to accept some slightly bigger gears. And that means we've got to move one mount. You've only got to move one mount five mil and you can't bolt on the old chassis. Now, while that is a bit of an excuse for not doing something this year, and you know, let's be honest, with COVID, with the world economy, with lockdowns and everything else, you've got plenty of other excuses why you wouldn't do something magical and fix it during the year. You know, this has not been an easy year. It's not like you can turn around and phone up the guys that built the last chassis and just say, build me another one that's different here. It would be easy for something to go wrong. But... Morbidelli has shown that the old chassis and the old combination of weight distribution, bearing position, flexibility and rigidity works. 
So what they've got to do now is look at the new engine and work out how to build a chassis for that engine that does all the things the 2019 chassis did. And just go out and play. That means we might get different air inlets because one of the differences with the new chassis was a different size hole um, around, the, around the headstock to get more air into the engine. We shall see. We shall see. Interesting times. Uh, let us not forget that Quattararo is going up to the works Monster Energy Yamaha squad and Valentino's going into the uh, into the Patronus squad. So there's a bit of a swapsy around. Uh, I think they'll all have the same bikes. We've, we're having to see the satellite teams have full factory works bikes and not much difference between them and, and the full factory squads because it's all data. You might as well up it by 100% and not drag yourself down very much so uh i happen to think that the yamaha will run exactly the same format as this year morbidelli will have a one year older bike uh, as long as he doesn't get this year's one that's fine i think he's publicly said i don't want it yeah i'm sure uh, <laughs> half half in jest half being very serious indeed so we have done suzuki yamaha now let's go to ducati oh ducati um, I'll say it again. I've said it in all sorts of other podcasts that we've done throughout the season. We've all got a little bit of a soft spot for Ducati. They are the Ferrari of two wheels. They are the eh, the Italian way, the Mugello, the Imola, the the uh, Misano, the, all the best places. The romantic Grand Prix team on two or four wheels, essentially. They're red. It was an open door. Marquez wasn't around. He didn't score any points. Uh, a guy who had been second to Marc Marquez three times on the trot was Andrea De Vizioso. It was his for the taking. I said that he'd take the championship once we had seen that Marquez was in big trouble and eventually, of course, never reappeared. And yet, they couldn't do it. Was this technical or was it politics? It was initially technical, then it immediately turned into politics. The initial technical thing is Ducati clearly do not understand the dynamics of their bike in the way that Suzuki have proved they do. The one thing that Suzuki got right was a way to accept that new Michelin rear slick and make the motorcycle work brilliantly. And that's the one thing that Ducati did not do. As soon as they did not do it, they started having doubts about re-signing their number one rider, who clearly couldn't ride the bike they turned up with, and instead of fixing the bike, they managed to annoy both the rider and not fix the bike. Which was De Vizioso that Neil's talking about. However, there was one strange race in 2020 when this new 2020 Michelin tyre wasn't used and they put an older spec in. That was Austria. Explain. Well, the, the certain characteristics of the new tyre where the loads put on it at Austria, the ultra-high speeds and everything else, would not be good. It's something Michelin didn't want to do. It was nice and safe to go and build and use the tyre they'd built specifically for high-speed circuits like Austria. And that was based on the previous year's carcass. So the chassis balance could be what De Vizioso liked. And he duly did quite well, you know. Not as well as Suzuki, who'd also worked out that they could go back to last year's stuff, I'm sure. Um, but in the end, by then, the politics were starting to mess things up. You had Dovi in the middle of trying to renegotiate a contract, actually finally turning around to Ducati saying, it's not a question of whether I want you, uh, you want me, it's a question of I actually don't want you. I've had enough, I'm out. He, he went He went out one of the sessions in Austria with uh, unemployed... Yeah on his backside, on the back of yeah. his leathers. Didn't think that was the wisest of things to do, personally. That's just my opinion. It got Ducati's back up even more. Talk about stroking the cat the wrong way, and oh, yeah, yeah, off yeah. it went. No, I, I mean, there's many expressions I could use, but none of them in, none of them polite enough for here. Um, but it, it was <laughs> yeah. just a mess. It, it just They just augured themselves into the ground. They had one or two excellent outings. Younger riders than Davizioso were more adaptable and managed to get some good results. 
but the wins eluded them, basically. Jack Miller coming away with four podiums throughout the season. So proof of the pudding there as to why he's going up to the to the works team, the full Reds, full factory team in 2021. Uh, and in, a, a bit more of a heartfelt question for you, Neil. You've 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 engineered Ducatis for your own motorcycle championship in the past. Do you think it's a shame that they got it wrong? Do you do you have a little bit of your warm-blooded side looking at Ducati going, what are they doing? Or do you just shrug your shoulders? Yeah. No, uh, I mean I've been very close to Ducati for very many years and I love them dearly. But I love them as much for their faults as for their strengths. And one of their faults is that they can build a fantastic machine, but somewhere in there, you know, deep down, there's a belief they need the perfect rider to ride it. You need a good rider to ride a good bike and to win a championship, but they seem to believe they need the perfect rider. And I think that's because deep down, they think their bike isn't quite as good as the next one. That's a good point, actually. I've been rolled in the paddock for 25 years and arguably, the perfect riders I have seen have been Mick Doohan, Valentino Rossi, Jorge Lorenzo, Casey Stoner, Mark Marquez. There you go. Five people. Yeah, perfect but, rider. But very different perfect riders. Three of They those were the guys. perfect rider at the time because they blitzed the championship. Absolutely, yeah. But, there were, but, but three of those guys need a motorcycle that's right for them. Two of them, Stoner and Marquez, could pro probably have won their championships on a push bike with an outboard <laughs> engine on the back. You know what I mean? There was, they, yeah. they, they, they had a different... They, they came to the bike rather than requiring the bike to come to them. Um, no, I, I... They're still all rather handy, and Valentino did win on a Yamaha first time out. They, they're all rather handy. There are other world champions in, other world champions in there... Kenny Jr., Alex et al., who are, you know, Nicky, who are who yeah. are no no fools, but they're, they're those not guys quite in the first division, are they? Well, no, they're in the first division. They're just not super special, and those guys are super okay, special. Okay, granted, granted. Freudian slip. What, 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 Ducati keep hitting sweet spots to me. For instance, a couple of years ago, Dovi would go out in practice without the wings on the bike, and he'd go unbelievably well. Then for the race, they strapped the wings back on and suddenly it dissolved. If you look at a Honda, I'm not suggesting the Honda's the best engineered bike, but there's so much experience and depth of experience there. If you are going out racing and you've got something hanging off your motorcycle that is not hanging off the works Honda, you need to have some very, very powerful reasons why you're doing it. Not saying it's wrong. You know, classic thing would be the, the, um, tire cooler uh, the wing on the, the the wing on the swing arm which honda's adopted after ducati went in first but ultimately if honda's not using that much front wing i have to ask why ducati is for instance they're being different and i don't feel the need to be different i just need for them to build a bike as good as the honda without any extra sexy toys that will do the job as good as the Honda, then you can start adding extra bits. Okay, that is Ducati. Let's go a little bit further north over the uh, over the Brenner Pass, shall we? Over the South Tyrol, Tyrolean Mountains to, to Matikofen in Austria. KTM came out, as you've already said, with Brand Bidder winning the first Grand Prix for KTM at the third round of the championship at Brno. And then Miguel Oliveira winning at Austria. And then pole position, led every lap, fastest lap at the final Grand Prix of the year, which was his home Grand Prix at Portugal. KTM, they've won three Grand Prix now. Uh, wow. They've now lost yeah, their concessions. So they've now got to have the same amount of engines as everybody else in 2021. They're not allowed to go testing ad infinitum with their Grand Prix duo of riders next year as well. So things are getting a little bit restricted. The pressure's on. What's your review of them technically? Technically, the chassis is clearly extremely good. Um, I like the steel beam. It looks like a steel beam. I'm absolutely convinced it's a C-section, not a D-section, if you see what I mean, so that the back's open. 
Um, they're clearly making parts 3D printing. You can't 3D print aluminium. So uh, they're doing things with steel that cannot be done with aluminium. Uh, several people have been good enough after we had a discussion halfway through this year to point out the advantages of aluminium over steel. But I think in the current world where we are prizing the difference in rigidity of good rigidity under braking forces, good resistance to twist under accelerating forces with getting on for 300 horsepower going through the rear chain on one side of the bike, and then a bike that will flex at something like 63 degrees of lean, um, you need a material that gives you an advantage. And steel lets you make your beam, I think, smaller and therefore flex is, a, is capable of flexing more down at the tyre while leaned over. So I think KTM have actually found something here that everybody else maybe hadn't thought of. I'll wait until I see a works Honda with a steel frame, but, I'm, <laughs> but where, where I'd have laughed that out of court two years ago, I'm not doing so now. Um, the other thing I think that has made a big difference this year, they finally got the engine to work, uh, to work well. It, it is, I think it must be about the fifth or quite possibly the sixth iteration since they started. Um, they tried a forward rotating engine. They've tried big bang. They've tried different sequencing. They finally ended up with something not a million miles off a of works Honda, um, different, different V angle. I think the KTM's 85 degrees and the Honda's 90. Uh, but that's a sufficiently small change not to make a massive difference. Um, but I think the fundamental thing that made a difference this year was was actually where they could test. All of their wins came where the riders understood the circuit perfectly. Binder had pre-run Bruno. He hadn't pre-run A1 ring because he was stuck in South Africa when they tested there. But Bruno, he'd run. He understood it. He'd learnt it. And they'd found a setup for him there. The other two races are at circuits where either the test either the test team had done reasonably well or where the rider specifically knew the circuit. A Portuguese rider won the Portuguese Grand Prix for a reason. He knows that circuit backwards. But also he had that lift of a home Grand Prix and that emotional I can walk on water for three days feeling, which does happen now and again because we saw it with Morbidelli at Aragon. He said, yeah, but, I don't know what it, happened it, in the race. I was walking on water. <sighs> yeah, but yes, it was the home race, but he didn't exactly have a crowd chance. No, him, but he? It, <laughs> cut me some slack, Spalders. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> but no, so I'm massively impressed by KTM, but they've still, they, they can't blink. They must keep fighting like crazy because they've lost something that was clearly very important to them, which was time at the track to get the setup right. It matters that you can get the setup right in the allotted practice time. For the races that they run, that they won, KTM had effectively had three days extra. Mm. Mm. And at Bruno, probably 20 days because. It's as good as an Austrian circuit for them. They, they yeah, do the, go test there a lot, a, the test teams want a groove around it. Yeah, uh, but Honda have done the same elsewhere and Ducati have done the same at Mugello. And, you know, it's, it's, it's not just an unfair advantage for one team. No, they're, they, they're there or thereabouts. Don't change anything. Just keep learning, chasing setups. The worst thing they could do now is come out with a pile of new bits. Too extreme. Yeah, yeah. Granted. Yes. Granted. They're close enough. You stop changing stuff. You start looking for little things. Exactly. Okay, so uh, are we really going to start talking about Honda in fifth position, as it were, in the Riders' Championship uh, order of pecking? We're not going by teams or constructors. So obviously no Marc Marquez, that crash at the first race of the year. We haven't seen him back on a motorcycle since in any shape or form. Wow. Pressure's on, yeah, eh? Absolutely. Pressure's on. I mean, first things first, the bike they turned up with for Mark was fantastic. Go and look at the times from that race. Go and look at the times after he had his excursion into the gravel trap and lost the wing off the swing arm. 
He was catching up. He was doing lap times quarter of a second, half a second lap faster than Quattraro. Quattraro was 100 meters free at the front of the field. Marquez was doing, I think I said it before during the season, he was doing the equivalent of a world-class 100-meter sprint up a crowded underground platform. Mm. Just stunning. Mm. And you can see over the last few years, Honda have concentrated on building a bike that lets Mark do that. And you can almost see their engineers saying, if we did this, he couldn't possibly go further, could he? And they've chased this, they've chased this dragon and it's finally bitten them because he didn't quite get it right on one corner and the resulting injury is pretty damn serious. I mean, you know, this could yet be a career ender. I absolutely hope and pray it isn't. But there's been enough ups and downs in this to know that, you know, you can't say it, it isn't. Once they'd lost Mark Marquez, you looked at the results and Honda's nowhere because their other riders simply couldn't move their weight, change their body position, uh, ride the rider bike as aggressively as Mark does. And it needed all of those to make it perform. What they did over the ensuing couple of months was phenomenal. They are the most, the, the, the biggest engineering leap this year was to take a bike that only worked for Mark Marquez at the first two rounds and turn up for the Misano test for one that worked absolutely perfectly under his younger, still novice rider brother. They changed the metal. It was a new chassis. He promptly paid them back by getting on podiums. You know, this is a motorcycle that was unrideable by anybody not called Mark Marquez just half a dozen races before. And they re-engineered it and shoved a piece of metal underneath. Now, they must have been halfway through. They must have, this is the sort of project where somebody must have said to them, look, in the cool of the evening, just draw up what you're going to run if we ever lose Mark. Because it's going to take you three months to build it. And they did that in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of a, uh, a world emergency. It's absolutely phenomenal piece of engineering. Absolute hats off. And next year, that means they're coming at, at us properly. Armed. Well, they can only go in one direction in the World Championship, and it better not be down. So, you know, they they are <laughs> yes. not stupid. They are not no. stupid. And still, in my eyes, you look at Honda and go, yeah, you know, in my experience in the paddock, they're still... They're still the ones. They're still the ones. I know other people have won other championships in the years I've been involved and you've been involved, but it's it's still Honda. They've been operating at world level since I was in a pram. Yeah. And, uh, you know, clearly it's different people, but they've got a depth of knowledge. They have forgotten. They've arguably forgotten more than anybody else in the paddock, except possibly Yamaha, has ever known. I'll say it again. There's and a magic it, line that Jerry Burgess told me one uh, one Japanese Grand Prix. We were talking about how buildings come and go, and he said, "Oh yeah." He said, "Outside HRC, there was this great big building," and then we went back six months later, nine months later, within the year, and there was a football field or a, or a grass field, park, benches, flowers, trees, and he said, "There was a building there, and it's gone, and it's now grass." Oh, yes. Well, we finished the project. Yeah, but did you really need to get rid of the building? Yes. Well, what was in the, what was in the building? What was the project? And it was the Honda uh, private jet that they made. You know, with, yep. the, with the backwards wings and yep. engines and whatever that they made. Uh, they, well, overwing, overwing engines. engines. Yeah. Sorry. Thank you, Neil. Um, they did it. It flew. It worked. It's fine. Mission accomplished. Next. Next, please. Yeah. <laughs> No, they are just, they are stunning, but they're also terrifying. You know, I mean, to me, um, Honda, Honda's racing department is Honda's Harvard. It's where they send their engineers to get, to make mistakes, mm. to, to do high pressure decisions in a, in a way that quite possibly a Japanese university doesn't equip you for. And they, they form top managers. People criticize their oval piston bike. You know, where we want to go with a four-stroke against two strokes. And the exhaust out the top. And there was the exhaust out the top. They're still learning from that. But the blokes who did that all ended up on the main board at Honda. They, they didn't develop the bikes. They developed the people. And that's how they see 
this racing. That's why sometimes you'll see Honda have a bad year. And I'm not going to say they're content to have a bad year. They're quite upset. But did they get something out of it? And the, and the question is, did they get a better developed bunch of engineers out of it? And if the answer is yes, mission accomplished. We might not know the answer to that for another 15 or 20 years. Yes. Yeah. When they're on the board. Yes. Somebody sat down in the weeks following Marquez's attempted comeback and said, we're in trouble. We need a new chassis. And somebody somewhere worked every single minute they could and turned up at Masano with something that did work for other riders. Phenomenal. And, and they were still experimenting. At the start of the year, they had a chassis where they were literally sawing lumps out of it on, on, a, on a midweek evening at the back of the garage to try and change the flex characteristics. And they had a Mark II version of that at some of the later tests. And they are probably still sawing lumps out of it. <laughs> Somebody somewhere is saying, well, try this procedure, then try that procedure, and then going back to Japan and measuring what they've got and then comparing it to what the rider said and having a look at what the entire people said and developing the next the next generation. They're amazing, aren't they? They're amazing. There is only one way that they can go in 2021, as can Aprilia. All full of the joys of spring when we came to the first race of the year. Then they had to turn the engine back a bit because they were losing them in a kind of a test slash shakedown before the first race of the year at Hareth, middle of July. Um, didn't didn't really hold what we thought would happen for the for the Noali Italian brand. Bit of a shame, but I don't know what else to say. No. Looking at people's faces at the end of last year, I mean... Alicia Spargro was in tears first time he rode this bike because it was so much better than the previous one. Yet they still conspired to drop the ball. If you go back and look at the, the, the way that Aprilia operated when they were winning championships with the likes of Lorenzo, Simoncelli, uh, Max Biaggi, you know, there was a, there was a real f- crisp, good team of people there. Those guys are still in racing. There's several of them in Ducati. There's a couple of them up at KTM. They're not in Aprilia. So the guys who are in Aprilia are essentially a new racing department. And we're watching the pain of a bunch of engineers learning what is necessary. And there's some pretty fundamental things being changed. V-angles, I mean, that's not cheap, but that was an experiment that was carried out by Suzuki 15 years ago. What's the correct V-angle? Um, funnily enough, they ended up at the same place that Honda started with. You know, yes. Now, Aprilia, to their credit, I think had something that answered that question with a similar angle. But now people have moved on, and for whatever reason, it might be uh, compression under the pistons, it might be weight distribution of where the metal is, 90 degrees or thereabouts appears to be the way to go. And Aprilia hadn't grasped that. So... It takes time. You know, you can't just suddenly turn around to the boss and say, give us the budget for another, yet another new engine. It doesn't go down well. So I'm actually quite concerned. I hoped that Aprilia would go well enough this year so that they could go back and face the boss and say, we've done this, we want some more money. And I'm not sure they've done that. I don't think, to be honest, that losing their number one rider, Iannone, and he was going to be number one, I think, with his new bike, um, has helped um, but I I'm going to wait and see if Aprilia sign up for another stint to be honest okay let's now go to some technical questions that have been sent in from our listeners and who have been to the-race.com and we've already done some questions with Simon Patterson on a previous podcast, but I've kept some back for you, Spalders. So I know you've been waiting. And Rob Potter has got the first question. Do you think that the aerodynamic fairings should be removed from the MotoGP bikes? He reckons that they're a total eyesore. He accepts that MotoGP is the F1 of bikes, but they just look ridiculous. What do you think? I think, to be honest, we've basically... We've ended up with the aerodynamics we've got because we ended up with engines that made too much power. Combination of rule changes meant that we ended up with bikes that made 20 or 30 horsepower more than we could use, and they kept trying to turn over backwards. 
Now that's fine, but if you put wings on the front, they cause drag, but they do hold the front down. So you end up using 15 of your spare 30 horsepower to push the wings through the air, and that then holds it down while you use another 15 horsepower before it starts to turn over backwards again. Side effect is it holds the nose down coming out of corners. So, do we want them? I would argue that it would be bit irresponsible to get rid of them unless you also reduce the power. If you knocked off at least 10%, possibly 15% of the total horsepower, you could take the wings off and say, okay. But it's introduced another angle to the game, which I think is quite important. You get different people an opportunity. I personally think Ducati slightly overdone the aerodynamics. It's, it's one area where I'd say to them, guys, calm down a bit. You know, uh, stop trying to, to do something more than everybody else. But if you look at the Yamahas and the Hondas, they're not exactly got massive wings on board. So I'm afraid for the power we've got, it would be very difficult to argue taking them off. But when you put the wings on a Panigale V4, it doesn't half look cool, I have to say. I'm in the cool yes. department. I think I think that looks cool. I really do. <laughs> yes, and I think racing should create stuff that looks a bit different. Yeah. I, I'd actually allow a far, a far more fairing around the front wheel. Mm. I'd actually, And that would make it go a lot faster. But I would like to see better pure aero rather that causes less drag than what we have now. But you'd have to then down the horsepower because things would be getting well too quick by then. Yeah, I, I I like your point that actually it's giving the opportunity for other engineers to ply their trade within the sport, and it's it's opening up job possibilities. It is upping the budget, of course. Remember those first wings that Alan Jenkins put on the on the works Ducati? Poor blimey! Let's go back now. Uh, At Stoner, two thousand and nine. Oh, there you go. Yeah. I was going to say thirteen yeah. years, but yep. 11, 12 will do. Um, you know, he, he came from a Formula One background and, you know, it's there. The opportunity's there. Air is there. So, but, yeah, but the thing that gets me about the Ducati, the one thing it's never done to the rider's real satisfaction is hold a line in corners, yet they keep strapping more wings on the front, which push the front down and therefore in corners probably make it Funny enough, run wide. Run wide. And round the circle goes. Okay, Samuel Gomes asks, what must KTM do to ensure their engines are going to last the entire season now that they've got less engines to run in 2021 because they've lost their concessions? So just to explain, they had seven engines each rider to play with this year. Next year, they're going to go down to five engines, the same as everybody else, because they've won these Grand Prix. Yes, if we have the same number of races. If we go back to a normal year's racing, they get two more, but they'd have had nine under the original situation. I mean, the most. Two less. Yeah. Two less. The most important thing is stay away from Yamaha's new valve manufacturer. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> Basically, they're not broken. All of their riders lost at one, at least one engine. Uh, Ica managed to lose two. Is that good? Is that bad? We never know whether you've taken some of the engines apart to see how things are wearing. Yeah, I mean, if you've done a lot of mileage on one of them, you just think, are we actually going to use this? Yes or no? Would it be nice to know how things are wearing so that we can work out how aggressively to treat the rest? So I I, I think that's possibly part of the reason. Um, I would just say it's not broken. Don't fix it. Ken M asks, would it be possible to increase the tyre allocation for each rider? Because we've seen in some races that riders have no fresh tyres for race day. Now, is that a mismanagement thing on their behalf? or In the end, the tyres are part of the game. Here's your supply of tyres and they're this tyre. You've got to make a motorcycle that works with those tyres and you've got to make a motorcycle that works with those tyres within one and a half hours of practice of turning up at the circuit. If you've built a bike that needs three hours practice and you're throwing all sorts of different settings at it and wearing out your tyres, then whose fault is that? I mean, Suzuki had a problem at the start of the year. The reason that Mir uh, lost out in Austria was he had to start a rerun race with a worn rear tyre. You know, they were right up against it. They knew how to get the wear out of their tyres, but there was nothing left in them at the end of the day. So for me, the tyre's just part of the match. You know, this is a bit like 
cooking and leaving out two major points of the uh, recipe because it's a little bit difficult. Very true, very true. We shall uh, see how that one goes. Phil Gardiner, when Michelin changes attire in a way that disadvantages a manufacturer, what politics, complaints, etc., go on behind closed doors? How does that manufacturer have a bit of a moan well, about it? it? They have a, a, a rule where everybody has to be unanimous, but there is also a point where Michelin turns up and says, this is what we're going to do. Um, we're the control tire manufacturer. We're going to shake up the grid. It's a, it's a very, it can be a very conscious decision by a promoter to change things and you know stop things that are getting a bit boring. Um, having said that, whatever the discussion was for a new pair of tires is a very different discussion to what they've got now, which is a new rear tire and no new rear front at the moment. So I can imagine that Michelin's taking a bit of a roasting, but in the end, they've got the contract that says they provide a tyre and it's up to everybody to work out how to use it. Very true, very true. Another tyre question is from Derek Scott. Would it be better to have two tyre manufacturers in MotoGP, one to develop tyres for inline fours and another for V4s? Well, if I can go first, uh, I think having a tyre war is fantastic. I think it's absolutely brilliant. Uh, when we were in the commentary box, when we were at race tracks, when it was Bridgestone versus uh, Michelin, with a bit of Dunlop in there as well. When you when it rained, we knew that ah, it's going to be a Bridgestone day with a bit of Dunlop in there, with a bit of Sylvan on it, or or Randy Dupunier, whatever it was. But yeah, I like a tyre war. Not quite so economically viable nowadays, but. Do you think there's that much of a difference between inline four and V4 for a rear tyre? Uh, you see, there's more to this game than meets the eye. You can have a tyre war, but then you end up with one tyre manufacturer better than the other. So how do you allow the people who are contracted to the one that's not so good to swap over? Especially if the the tyre manufacturer that's, making, that's doing the best job doesn't have any spare production. So you can easily lock people into something that's not performing. Equally, when you've got good tyres, the manufacturer doesn't normally have the manufacturing capacity to make the same tyres for every rider. Michelin's old business model was to turn up at a new circuit. They had half the grid at least signed up, and they'd have about five different types of tyre on Friday. Uh, and late Saturday afternoon, all the engineers would sit down and say, right, this construction works in this corner, this corner, this corner for nine riders and not for six. Uh, this one works in those other corners for five. And they'd come up with some wonderful fancy plan and they'd end up with a spec for the perfect tyre for the track. Overnight, they'd make enough tyres for three or four riders. Amazing. Everybody else, everybody else got to run the ones that weren't right. So until you were good, you didn't get the good tyres. So how do you get to be good on the bad tyres? So I can understand that a tyre manufacturer controlling the championship wouldn't make the people who run the championship very happy. So having two manufacturers, you open the door to that. From a personal basis, I ran a team many years ago. We had a rider and we had one choice of front tyre and one choice of rear. And the people we were next to on the grid had the choice of six fronts and six rears. For me, that was a moral victory to us, but I also stopped racing at the end of the year. Luca Cadalora's last 500cc Grand Prix victory was at the Nürburgring on a Honda NSR run by Irv Kanemoto in, Jul in 1996. He won with Olins at one end of the bike and Shoah on the other end of the bike. But the year before at Rio, when he was with Yamaha Team Roberts, he had Michelin on one end and Dunlops on the other. And as Kenny called it, the Michelop. <laughs> Wouldn't happen nowadays, of course, but it suited the rider. And he said, stuff you. That's what I want. I will win the race for you, and he did. Yes, but can you imagine trying to prize those tyres out of those manufacturers now? Uh, unfortunately, the world's moved on, and yeah. I would like the glory days of a tyre war, but I hate the control it gave, extremely bluntly, the wrong people. Yeah. Yeah. Robert Ryder, is MotoGP worth all the extra development and cost against World Superbike? When, for example, a lap record around Portomayo, the difference between the two classes is not even a second. Okay, but the, the, but the rule books are very different. Uh, we, MotoGP has Michelin's, World Superbike has Pirelli's, both excellent manufacturers. 
MotoGP has ECUs and uh, control systems designed now to be very simple, to be very dumb, and not to help the rider very much. World Superbike has ECUs which are guaranteed by the manufacturer at a certain price, but are actually the good ones running at almost old-fashioned MotoGP levels of control. So better spec than 2020 MotoGP. Absolutely, without a doubt. In fact, the Kawasaki team, uh, the electronics engineers in that team, are the guys that walked out of MotoGP with Kawasaki all those years ago. So... This isn't a this isn't a straight question. One 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 is a racing class with one hand tied behind its back in one way, and the other is a racing series with a one hand tied behind their back in another. If you you know, in the end, MotoGP is a little bit quicker. I would argue that the MotoGP is a more sophisticated vehicle in every area except the electronics. But the electronics don't half give a hand to the uh, superbike lads we've touched on this before but let's just do a quick review so be brief uh, marcel hummel do what do you think of the progress of the steel frame from ktm and do you think other manufacturers will go that way instead of aluminium neil touched on it before but to pray see your answer basically in the end the the rules governing the way a chassis is developed are wrapped up in a theory called the twist axis. This is the ratio. This is this is the way in which a chassis can be rigid under braking and flex under lean. And you have to find a line through the middle of the bike where the rigidity and the flexibility work together. So if you put in front of you a motorcycle and you had a big hydraulic pointer and you pushed on it if you push at the top somewhere the whole motorcycle bends away from you if you push somewhere down the bottom you push on it the whole motorcycle uh, twists away from you but if you find the hard bit in the middle the motorcycle simply bends backwards so it's it's trying this this concept of the twist axis is a way of defining how the bikes bend. Aluminium is a bulky material for its weight. It is just as rigid as steel, but because it's bulky, it's bigger, and because it's bigger, it is condemned to a slightly worse twist twist axis position than steel. I think small diameter main beams made of steel could become a fashionable item. KTM have shown us something new, and I think it's quite important. Question from some cycling royalty, no doubt. Joe Cundy, CBE, he's got seven golds in the Paralympics. Uh, Joe asks, is the Yamaha chassis that you, Neil, have, has followed <laughs> from Lorenzo to Zarco to Quattararo, etc., to Vinales, is that still being used and is there quite a bit of Lorenzo chassis in the Morbidelli chassis of this year, or has the Lorenzo chassis disappeared? I I think it's disappeared. I don't think it came back this year, but it would have fitted if they'd wanted it to. This is a little chassis. I called it the little chassis that could. Um, it was developed for Lorenzo in his last year, and it had some welds in some different places to all the other chassis. A strengthening plate had been put in. And it was just something I recognized as you walked past it. And uh, I remember it being on Lorenzo's bike. And then walking past uh, when Zarco turned up in Tech 3, and he's trying all the different chassis at Sepang. And I walked past it on the last day, and there's Lorenzo's fun little chassis with the extra weld. Huh. So he ran it all year. And then at the end of that year, Yamaha's obviously quite impressed with Zarco. Okay, here's all our chassis. Try them all. And he tried them all, and he came back, and he said, no, I'm keeping this old one. And you think, blimey, okay. And he ran it all year. And you think, okay, this is obviously working. Why is nobody else doing it, you know? Um, at, at one point, at the Valencia test, both Maverick and Rossi tried it and didn't like it. Then the next year, Malaysia, the Malaysian Sepang operation takes over the number two team position and they're getting new bikes so i'm thinking okay fine what's going they going to get and i walk past and it's a pang and this um 
Quattraro's bike and there's the Lorenzo Zarco chassis sitting on it and he obviously loves it. And he starts doing reasonably well. Halfway through the year, something's clearly getting to Maverick that Quattraro's got something better than him. And they must have turned around and just said, look, he's running that old chassis, that one that was built for Lorenzo that you hate. And at Assen, the Yamaha works team went to the Petronas team and said, Mr. Quattraro, here are some new work chassis. Can we have the old ones back, please? They're rubbish now. Went back to the garage next door, shoved them into into market, into uh, Maverick's bike. Maverick promptly wins the Grand Prix. This year, it would have fitted more Bedelli's bike. He's not shown any interest to ride it before. He had the option last year. I think he just ran a 20, 2019 chassis during 2020. Um, but I bet you right now that chassis is sitting in a jig and Yamaha are bending it this way and that, trying to work out if they did something wrong and duplicating a chassis that works like that with the engine design they've got now. There you go. Good question, Joe. Good answer, Neil. Uh, Thank you so much. We're going to be doing some more MotoGP podcasts during this off-season, taking us from 2020 into 2021. And we keep our fingers crossed to hope that everything goes smoothly for the start of the MotoGP season into 2021. Do keep in touch with Neil Spaulding through at Spaulders or get a copy of his book, MotoGPTechnology.com is where you can order it. And the little uh, the little workers will beetle around the workshop of Neil Spaulding and put it in the uh, put it in the post for you. Thank you, Neil. It's been a wonderful year. It's been one of the highlight years as 2020 for me. Uh, for you, question? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's been fantastic. Um, totally unexpectedly fantastic. And that's even better. Exactly. Couldn't agree more. Thank you all for listening. We look forward to speaking to you very soon. Goodbye for now. Goodbye for now.